When you get the power, do you exercise it in a just fashion or do you reintroduce elements of injustice in the name of your particular group and end up reproducing the very pathology that we seek to avoid when we speak about justice? race will be spoken of. Somebody's going to fill that gulf and gap. And unfortunately, the people who have filled that gap have been people who are not as insightful, not as wise, not as compassionate, and not as uh, historically knowledgeable as the president was, but his failure to speak up left a gulf. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. One of the nation's most renowned public intellectuals, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, has been named one of the most inspiring African-Americans in the United States by Essence magazine and one of the most influential black Americans by Ebony magazine. Called a street fighter in a suit and tie, he takes on the toughest and most controversial issues of the day, including race, politics, and pop culture, with his fearless and fiery rhetoric. An MSNBC political analyst and former host of NPR's The Michael Eric Dyson Show, Dr. Dyson is also an award-winning author. His speeches and books provide some of the most significant commentary on modern social and intellectual thought today, interwoven with a combination of cultural criticism, race theory, religion, philosophical reflection, and gender studies. Dr. Dyson has authored or edited 18 books, which explore the deep complexities of race, class, and gender dynamics as they manifest in American culture. His first book, Reflecting Black, African-American Cultural Criticism, published in 1993, helped establish the field of Black American cultural studies. Two years later, his book, Making Malcolm, The Myth and Meaning of Malcolm X, was named one of the most important African-American books of the 20th century. His latest book is The Black Presidency, Barack Obama and the Politics of Race in America. An ordained Baptist minister since the age of 19, Dr. Dyson holds a Ph.D. in religion from Princeton University and has taught at Chicago Theological Seminary, Brown University, Columbia University, and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, among others. Since 2007, he's been a professor of sociology at Georgetown University, and I understand a very popular one. I think we're about to see why. Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, welcome back to Appalachian. I think you were last here in 1997. Yes, I know. It's been almost 20 years, so it's uh, great to be back. (laughs) Well, welcome back to campus, and welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin by talking about something that's taking place on our campus right now. Over the past year and a half, members of our campus community have, really like many universities, held demonstrations and public discourse focused on race, privilege, and marginalization. Mm -hmm. Just in the past week, students here have voiced their opposition to the recently passed Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, or HB2, with public demonstrations on our campus and in our community. But while HB2 is bringing new fears to the forefront, the issues our students are bringing forward they're not really new. They're issues of marginalization, of discrimination, of tokenism that our predominantly white campus is working through as we actively face the challenges of diversifying our community. Our students are looking for a next step, and they're asking, what can they do? How can they affect change? And while I realize you're not privy to the specifics of our challenges, um, these are somewhat universal. So I was wondering if you have some advice for our students and and our administration about how to take the next step from demonstrating to action. Yes, well, I think uh, it's an extremely important uh, issue to be addressed. And I think, first of all, drawing the parallels between struggles against injustice in other arenas and spheres and making those connections here. Martin Luther King Jr. said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So racial injustice is intolerable, but so is the injustice directed toward gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, queer people, uh, those who are women 
as minorities in a predominantly male environment, and so and, and those who are other abled and the like. So we have to pay attention uh, specifically uh, to the interests of those people and to see that their democratic rights are protected, small d. And I think the, the, the place we go from here is not only conceiving of uh, an invigorating response of protest against the injustice, which is important, a publicly powerful symbolic fashion of expressing outrage against what has occurred. On the other hand, I think it has to move into a different sphere, and that is the electoral one. How do we hold politicians accountable who have passed these laws, who have put this legislation forward? A governor who signed it, uh, legislators who who, um, articulated it. And I think uh, similar to what we saw in, um, I believe it was Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, in Chicago, Illinois, where local prosecutors had made decisions that were counterproductive in regard to racial harmony and racial justice by not calling to account in Cleveland uh, the the cops who killed Tamir Rice and in uh, Chicago a long delay in the case of Laquan McDonald who was murdered who was killed by a policeman there so they took to the polls and they put those people out and so I think the next logical step is to leverage the authority of one's own civic and civil uh, participation and make certain that those people who make those decisions are held to account. Secondly, to flood them with calls, emails, tweets, uh, uh, letters, and the like to express the profound displeasure with what they see occurring here, because you can be certain that those who support that law have expressed it and voluminously. So what they have to do, that is those people who protest against HB2, is to figure out a way to express themselves by flooding the channels of democracy with their presence. And then thirdly, I think what has to happen is that people have to vote even more broadly, not simply for a president um, and not simply for prosecutors, but at every level for these legislators who are put into office, how can we hold them accountable and have you know local meetings beyond the protests where citizens either A, go to the city council or the local state senator, the local representative, and flood those with bodies of protest. And then beyond that, call out community organizations, the NAACP, Human Rights Watch, and the like, who together can leverage their collective presence as watch groups, watchdogs of local rights and national ones as well, and then push those um, arguments forward in publicly convened meetings where citizens are able to express what they believe. So I think those are some of the ways that people can take concrete action beyond the initial protest. Our students are connecting Black Lives Matter to this movement, broadening it beyond an LGBTQ plus discussion because it is a symptom of larger oppression. Mm -hmm. Do you think this inclusion is emblematic of a new kind of millennial form of activism or maybe the next step set in place by Dr. King connecting the civil rights movement to poverty? Yeah, I think that's uh, great. And I think both are true. Uh, This is a logical extension of what uh, Dr. King talked about in terms of fighting militarism, in terms of fighting uh, poverty, and in terms of fighting racism. So at the end of his life, he was preoccupied with this very aggressive, progressive agenda. And he was not very popular as a result of that, but he continued to forge ahead. I think that the millennials are certainly on cue when they are taking their marching orders from both the history that they have studied, but also the contemporary moment, which calls out its own unique action. 
And so I think their emphasis on what has been called intersectionality, the ways in which race and class and gender and sexuality and the like come together and must be dealt with simultaneously, not as individual groups who are segregated or parceled out, but to understand how all of those issues come together uh, simultaneously and therefore must be addressed simultaneously. And I think millennials are on top of that and on cue and responding in a, in a very powerful way. And it brings together a greater base of allies. Uh, the broader you extend the tent of justice for issues that are impacting human beings and citizens, the broader sway you have because you have more numbers of people who feel implicated uh, in particular actions and who feel called to respond in very decisive and political fashion. One of the things I really admire about your oratory style is your combination of part inspiration and part take no prisoners. You hold people accountable for their words and their actions, Mm -hmm. and yet you also give them credit where credit is due. Um, And I think this is an amazing gift that you possess, but I also have a feeling that it's a deliberately crafted skill as well. (laughs) Well, you're very kind. Can you talk about how you foster this skill and also why it's so important to do that? Yeah, well, thank you very kindly for your uh, wonderful and generous words. Look, I've been, you know, part and parcel of the black church since I've been knee-high to a tadpole. So I remember as a young child, three, four, five years old, participating in the Sunday school recitations during Easter or during Christmas and having speaking parts. And then from there, you know, getting involved in uh, spelling bees at school and oratorical contests. Before that even, in the fifth grade with my teacher, Mrs. James, at Wingard Elementary School in Detroit, she gave us a sense of black history, and we studied it, and we studied it well, and, and we delved deeply into the recesses and the wells of black history, black thought, black progressive identities that were being put forth by people from Mary McLeod Bethune to Nanny Helen Burroughs to Jackie Robinson and the like, and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. So we studied, but I also was able to win my first blue ribbon for the recitation of poetry, Little Brown Baby, by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, one of his vernacular poems. So public recitation of poetry, uh, spelling bees, and then in the seventh grade getting involved in oratorical contests where I went on to win several awards for crafting speeches that we had to memorize and then present after writing them. And then uh, that led me into, um, you know, oratorical um, engagements across the, the city of Detroit and then eventually as a preacher across this nation. So I've been a student of oratory, a student of the best thought that was articulated in a public space by people who were extemporaneously speaking or those who had a prepared document from which they um, delivered their public remarks. So I've been a fan and a student of that and have tried to... Um, bring together some of the best traditions of black preaching, of public oratory, of the classroom, of the intellectuals workshop, and of public intellectual vocation to unite them in the effort to uh, use words as wisely and as uh, provocatively uh, as possible to bring about change. When you talk about public figures like Martin Luther King and Barack Obama, and really, you know, many others, you have this way of providing them with both compliments for what they do well, but you give them a hard time, too. (laughs) Well, I I think we have to be balanced, you know. I think, look, Barack Obama is an extraordinary figure, you know, one of the greatest uh, Americans we've ever produced, and certainly I think he'll go down as one of the greatest presidents in our history now that the full arc of his presidency is becoming clear and the accomplishments are pretty noteworthy. 
but what he has done on race will not win him those plaudits. Uh, he's like uh, Shaquille O'Neal as a basketball player. Shaquille O'Neal was a dominant figure. He just now got elected to the Hall of Fame, four championships, but he was a horrible free throw shooter. So when we tell his story, we can't lie and pretend that, oh, Shaquille O'Neal also did well free throws. He didn't. In fact, he made his team vulnerable because of his own um, deficiency in that arena. He was a liability to his team at the end of the game, so they did what they called a hack-a-shack. The opponents would deliberately foul him because they knew he was a poor free-throw shooter and he'd be put on the line, and therefore he might lose the game. So Barack Obama uh, does many things well. One of them is not leading with perspicacity, with intelligence and uh, insight on the issue of race. He has perspicacity, intelligence, and insight, but he just hasn't shared them as generously with us as I think might be warranted by the situation, the crises that we see, uh, you know, in America right now. And what's interesting, I happen to believe that given what's going on in this 2016 race between the Democrats and the Republicans, we see on the Republican side a man who's been leading the nomination for the Republican side and has, in many ways, uh, been the leading figure from the very beginning. This same man is the very man who uh, said Obama was not a legitimate American, who led the birther movement against the president. So we see the degree to which we have descended, plummeted even, in our own American democratic experiment with a man now who fancies himself a true leader, but for whom demagoguery or a certain level of xenophobia and racism seem to attach to his rhetoric, whether that's in his, his intention or not. And so when we think about that, we think about the fact that race will be spoken of. So if you hesitate to speak of it as the president was, somebody's going to fill that gulf and gap. And unfortunately, the people who have filled that gap have been people who are not as insightful, not as wise, not as compassionate, and not as uh, historically knowledgeable as the president was. But his failure to speak up left a gulf where others stepped in. And I think Donald Trump is one of them. That's one of the poor consequences of his politics of racial procrastination and his deadly hesitation to articulate viewpoints and, and understandings that might have helped the nation uh, move forward. So I think his own racial hesitancy and procrastination have been deleterious, have, been, have had negative consequence. And so I appreciate his genius, his incredible ability to bring people together, but he's also got some flaws. And, and as with Dr. King, we have to be honest about them. Yeah. I like too how you're honest about people that you don't agree with in terms of You'll give somebody a hard time and then you'll right. turn around and say, but I do like this aspect of what they say, or I yes. do like this aspect of who yes. they are. And yes. I think that's something that's so important right now mm -hmm. for where we are as a nation. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, if you're going to demonize your opponent, you've lost already. The argument has been lost. The not necessarily one's own partisan argument, but the argument that is based upon one's humanity. We don't have to premise our opposition to our opponents by the denial of their humanity or on the inability to acknowledge them as worthy human beings who happen to disagree, and even vehemently so. So I don't think it does any good for us to deny that our opponents are human beings. They're not American. They're not really democratic. They're not uh, invested in the same kind of process as we are. Stop. You know, all of us are trying to work our way toward a better America, a better nation. Now, I vehemently and vigorously disagree with many of my opponents who happen to be on the far right and certainly those who are Republican. But it doesn't mean I deny their humanity and don't understand that they can say some things. Donald Trump, 
you know, it said some things that I think are quite interesting in terms of challenging the status quo when it comes to politics as usual and how uh, on both sides of the aisle, Democrats and Republicans, big money has been awash in there and he's funding his own campaign. Whatever one says about that, there's a there's something resonant about that challenge. So many people are picking up, not simply on his racism and xenophobia and his gendered, you know, resistance to women and his misogyny, but there are also other elements there that are quite powerful and quite resonant that we have to acknowledge that are a judgment on those of us who claim to be on the right side but haven't necessarily all the way, all the time, uh, done the right thing. So I think it's important to see the legitimacy and humanity of one's opponent. Can you talk about what's the role of a leader, whether leader of a company or university, university system, we just had ours visit today, mm-hmm. or a country, to facilitate a culture that will demarginalize those who are marginalized? Yeah, that's, a, that's beautifully put. Look, leaders lead, <laughs> and that means they take, you know, the guff from other people. They take what sticks in somebody else's craw, and they have to hear it. They take the finger-pointing. They take the denunciation. All of that they absorb into their collective body, so to speak. And what they do is put forth ideas. Imagination is important to foster a climate of openness. The ideas that must be expressed must come from a place of genuine knowledge and insight about a particular arena, Um, but especially if we're talking about higher education, what the nation needs, how it should be driven forward, or if you're a political figure, you know, how we best call upon, as Abraham Lincoln said, the better angels of our nature. So for me, I think leaders are people who are willing to be open-minded, who are willing to take the best knowledge available and to apply it, who are willing to listen to others who don't agree with them and consider their viewpoints as they make their decisions. And then ultimately, those who are able to take the heat and to stand up and be accountable and responsible for the uh, decisions they make, for the choices they embrace, and for the rhetoric that they use to express those choices. And when we have a self-conscious, in that sense, leadership that is willing to be self-critical as well as, you know, moving the, the nation, the community, the college forward, then we've got the best of what we have done as a people, collectively speaking, as Americans, and we're able to move the needle, so to speak, in, the, in a more progressive or at least uh, helpful direction in this nation. So every day I ask myself as a parent and as a staff member and someone who teaches college students, what can I do to make my community more inclusive? And I think a lot of us ask that question at Appalachian, and we're working really hard on that as a university. So what advice do you have for those of us who are trying to work through this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, look, uh, being reflective, you know, meditate a little bit every day. Just think about where we are, what crisis we confront, what problem or obstacle or impediment we need to overcome. And I think when we do that, and then from there, ask ourselves, are we doing everything we can to make this nation, this school, this community better? And can we empathize with people with whom we disagree? And furthermore, those people who are vulnerable, are we doing everything we can to relieve the hurt, harm, and danger to which they are subject? And do we as oppressed people introduce other forms of oppression? For instance, if you're an African-American or Latino or a woman, do you engage in homophobic behavior because you're a member of a church? And even though you're a woman who wasn't allowed to speak or a black person who wasn't allowed to participate or a Latino who had been marginal, when you get the power 
do you exercise it in a just fashion or do you reintroduce elements of injustice in the name of your particular uh, tribe or your particular group or your particular um, you know, organization and end up reproducing the very pathology that we seek to avoid when we speak about justice? So I think when we're honest and open and self-critical and imagining the other person whose back is against the wall, who's being mistreated, if we can imagine ourselves as them, you know, and, and not get defensive so that, you know, when white brothers and sisters are asked to think about white privilege, now there's a way we can, we can ask that question. I don't think you should, you know, beat people down so much so that they're so defensive that no good can come of the conversation. But if you ask people, think about what it might mean. Oh, I don't have any white privilege. I'm poor like everybody else. I came from, you know, the holler, the, the backwoods, out yonder somewhere. Then you say, well, if you're a white person, though, and the police happen to stop you, and if you reach for your wallet, they don't assume it's a gun, that's a form of white privilege that has nothing to do with class. That extends to people, the presumption that they will not be dangerous or somehow destructive or you know, threatening to a particular police person. And that has to do with collective unconscious, that has to do with bias, that has to do with who you think is more likely to commit a crime and the like. So there are many ways and many layers that we have to think through. And if we're willing to, as I challenged earlier, African-American people and Latino people who may be homophobic and challenge their own views, if we're willing to open ourselves to criticism, helpful principle criticism, not nastiness, not viciousness, not what Taylor Swift calls haters going to hate, <laughs> as she borrows that from others. But the point is, are we willing to be open and honest and exchange ideas and say we disagree and why we disagree and at least move ourselves in a more enlightened direction? I think at that level, we will have represented the best of the traditions that have produced us in this nation. Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, thank you so much for your time. It has truly been my privilege to speak with you today. Ms. Hayes, it's so, so wonderful to be here with you and uh, invite me back anytime. I'd love uh, to come back. Thank you. In a way, you know, I'm, I'm, I think it was fortuitous that you weren't here in January and that you mm. came here today. I think there, right. our campus needed you today, right. and we're so glad that you're here with us. Well, so. I'm honored to be here and privileged to, to sit here with you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.